All right. I hope if you've uh, got your Bibles with you, you'll make your way over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're picking up this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to give a little preface similar to what I gave a few weeks back in that this text is fully addressing sexual immorality. And so that is going to be very much the content of today's sermon. Our time in the Word is uh, speaking towards that topic. And so if you're a parent, maybe you have young kids, and maybe you, you want to be um, sensitive to that. I just want to give you an awareness, okay? I just want you to know. Um, I have three kids, and uh, I see two of them right now. The other one's in the bathroom. All right, so he'll be back. Um, so all that to say... Um, I intend to stay within the bounds of Scripture. I trust that as this letter was delivered to the Corinthians, uh, it was read before the full church, the full audience of the church, and so that includes kids. And so um, I'll be mindful of that, but I do just want you to know and have a heads up beforehand, all right, as we get into this text. But that said, let me go ahead and, and pray, and then we'll jump into things. Father, again, I, I do thank you for this morning. Lord, that you've given, you give us life and breath and all things. And I thank you for your word that is sharp, it is always relevant. And Lord, I just believe that you have something for us this morning. And so, Father, I pray as we enter into this time where we examine your word, I, I pray that, Lord, you might use it to examine our hearts, Lord, that we might see with clarity, Lord, places that need to be repented of vices that need to be laid down. I pray that you might do that work of sanctification in our lives today, Lord. And for those that maybe have entered into this place and they're not believers, Lord, I pray that today you might do that work, that they might come to know you, to trust you, to serve you, to follow you, to become a part of this family and the family of God. And Lord, I don't consider it a small thing, Lord, to be here with brothers and sisters this morning. So Father, bless this time. Grow us in Christ-likeness and in holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, I hope you've made your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I will just say this as well. This is part of the reason why I preach the way that I do. I like to preach through entire books of the Bible and uh, occasionally will veer from that. But I do so because I know myself well enough to know I probably would not just gravitate towards this text on my own. All right, I'm probably not just going to pull this out in a topical sermon and jump into the text we're going to be in today. And so I, I think it's important to, for me convictionally to, to preach and teach in this way where we walk through the full counsel of God. We, we can't ignore certain texts. If we get to something that's difficult or uncomfortable, we deal with it. We walk through that. And so that's in part uh, part of my philosophy in teaching and preaching. And so why we do the things that we do is because of texts like this that otherwise we may not ever address because again it's uncomfortable and some might say politically incorrect to talk about but at the same time it's in God's word and he's got it here for us and so let me go ahead I'll just read the text as a whole and then we'll begin to walk through it let me pick up in verse 12 chapter 6 verse 12 through verse 20 and this is out of the I read from the New American Standard it says all things are lawful for me but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, 
But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Let me pray once again. Father, again, I come into your presence, and Lord, I ask for your help this morning. Lord, that you would give me a proper sensibility to this text, to your spirit, and Lord, that I might speak in accordance to it. Lord, may I not veer to the left or to the right. Lord, may I not muddy the waters or trample the grass, but rather I pray that I speak faithfully in accordance to your word, for in that my authority lies. It rests in you and your word and my faithfulness to it. So Father, do a work today and be made much of, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we get into this text, we, we've been walking for the past couple of weeks through some of the various vices and and sins that this church here in Corinth have been experiencing. We, we saw in chapter 5, of course, they were unwilling to judge this individual who was in an immoral relationship. Um, we, we see as we get into chapter 6, they're taking one another to civil court. And then as we get here to this latter part of chapter 6, we're going we're gonna to see another immorality that is happening in the body here at Corinth. Now, some commentators have said, well, this is more general, it's more broad that he's addressing this, but I, I think, along with many, that he's very explicit in this. He lets us know what the situation is. You go to verse 15, that's actually where I'm going to take us first. Look at verse 15. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. So evidently the situation in Corinth is such that members of the body of Christ, members of the church, are participating in sexual relationships with prostitutes. They're in Corinth. That, that's what's happening. Now, let me just give us a little context, a little cultural context here, because I think that's helpful for us. In Paul's day, and in the Roman Empire in particular, prostitution was much more culturally the norm. All right? Now, that's not an excuse for it. I'm just letting you know that it was more acceptable practice among the Romans. In fact, it was pretty commonly known and stated that an individual's spouse was for raising an heir, providing an heir, and then the prostitutes were for their sensuality, having their desires satisfied. So that was normal. That's, that's what was expected within the Roman Empire. All the more so in Corinth. Remember, Corinth was a place of particular licentiousness and viciousness, And sexual sin was rampant everywhere. In fact, they had multiple pagan temples that part of pagan worship would be participating in sexual acts with prostitutes. 
and the temple provided those for you. And so this was very much a part of the culture here in Corinth, all right? Nonetheless, we would anticipate that after someone comes to faith, they would have the understanding, hey, we probably need to stop doing this. Probably need to move on from this. It's not acceptable. Well, evidently, in Paul's day, many within the church at Corinth didn't move on from that. They hadn't seen this for what it was, and they're still participating in this sin. So look with me here in verse 12, 12 and 13. Paul addresses this a little differently than he does some of the other sins prior to this, the way that he begins. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. All things are lawful for me. Now notice Paul doesn't rebuke that statement. He doesn't. He qualifies it. He says, but I will not be, excuse me, but not all things are profitable. Same the second half of the verse. I will not be mastered by anything. The reality is this statement, all things are lawful for me, probably is something that that Paul himself had uttered while in Corinth. Remember, he had a lengthy ministry there in Corinth, teaching, preaching. He's been in communication with this church. And in all likelihood, he made the comment, all things are lawful for me. But we know Paul well enough to know that he leaves not many statements unqualified. So he probably said, all things are lawful for me in Christ. Remember, that's something he said all throughout this text, all throughout his letters. In Christ, all things are lawful for me. He doesn't leave it unqualified. That's how they're approaching this. All things are lawful for me. Therefore, we can go out and do whatever we want. We've been saved. We're no longer under the law. Therefore, we can go do whatever we want. They're using this as a a license for sin, much like what they had done several chapters before. So that's one way in which they're justifying this activity. All things are lawful. I've got grace. Look what he says next. I will not be mastered by anything. We're going to come back to that towards the end because this whole text is very tightly knit together. And so there'll be a couple of times here in the beginning I'm going to move through something fairly quickly and I think it'll all come back at the end, all right? But look what he says in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Now, probably, I say probably because in, in the original Greek, we don't have quotation marks to know quotes, okay? But probably this statement, probably the one prior to that, these are quotes. They're probably, again, slogans by the church at Corinth, and here maybe even for the people of Corinth as a whole. How they view life how they view the body, the lens by which they see things. Food is for the stomach, and stomach is for food. That's their rationale. So what are they doing here? Okay, you got food. You got the stomach. The stomach, it's an internal organ, right? Its purpose is to process food, to provide nutrients, to be satisfied. Food does that for the stomach. Food, when left on its own, when not devoured, when not consumed, what happens to it? It goes to waste. It doesn't fulfill its purpose. So you see the connection here, how they're making this rationale. Food is for the stomach. Stomach is for the food. So what they then do 
is apply this not only to the internal organ of your stomach, but apply it to the body as a whole. Essentially, what they equate this to is, well, the body then is for sex, and sex is for the body. That's what they would say. That's the rationale behind this. That if the body has certain desires and cravings that need to be satisfied, you satisfy those things. And that's how they justify this. They're, they're building a theological framework whereby to justify their sin. Now, notice here, we're going to see more closely what their theology, where, where, I say where the fault is. There's a lot of fault in this, but the glaring one right here. He says, but God will do away with both of them. What do they mean by that? The, the thought of the day that was so present in Corinth and in Rome in general, there was a stoicism, a dualism that was accepted among the culture that the soul would live forever, for eternity. The body would be cast aside. So whatever you do in this life with the body, doesn't matter. It, it's, not, it's not leaving with you. So cast it aside. Do whatever you want with it. It doesn't matter. As long as the soul is saved. That's the mentality that has seeped into the church at Corinth. They've accepted this heretical teaching, this dualism that the body has no value. And you see how it's fleshing itself out in the life of the church? These individuals who are practicing this sexual sin are using it as an undergirding, this heretical teaching, to be promiscuous. I just want to back up for just a second. I think the fact that these individuals are going to such great lengths to, pro to provide a theological framework and justification for their sin shows that they're under conviction. I think God's probably telling them, hey, this isn't right. You ought not do this. And thus, they're working really hard, doing some hermeneutical gymnastics, if you will, so as to make it okay. And I just want to say, church, do we do that? Do we have a particular sin in our life that we're not willing to lay down and we've built a framework of theology as false and jacked up as it may be? Have we used that to somehow then justify our sin? If so, we need to repent of that. Now, Paul was getting ready to blow that framework to pieces. Look, look what he says. Keep, keep going with me here in verse 13. He says, but yet the body is not for immorality. It's not. But for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. This body is not merely for this. It's not for this. It's not for immorality. But rather this body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. He flips it on its head. He changes it all. Rather, he says, the body will not be cast away. It's the Lord's. And he cares for it. What does he root all this in? Look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. He roots it all in the resurrection. What happened to the body of the Lord Jesus? Was it cast aside? No, it wasn't. It was raised again. It was transfigured. So it will be with our bodies. Therefore, our bodies ought not be cast aside. 
We all not treat them this way. We all not have this dualistic mindset of it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. No, the, the believer ought to have a certain stewardship mindset of our bodies that holistically we go about life. Holistically, we worship and glorify God. So it matters what you do with your body, church. Now, you can unpack that in a lot of ways. But just think about it in this way. If, if you knew that God was for your body, and your body was for God, would you change your lifestyle at all? Would you change what you're going to have for lunch this morning, or this afternoon? What you had for breakfast this morning? Would you decide to suddenly start exercising a little bit? Get moving? Would you leave the office at a reasonable time rather than participating in workaholism? Would you go to bed at a reasonable hour, try and sleep, get some rest? It has implications for how we live. If we understand that God is for our body and our body is for Him, we're stewards of it. Do we take care of ourselves? I think that's a valid question out of this text. Now, keep moving with me. Look here in verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, we know that. We, we talk about that a lot. It's part of our vernacular. Being the bride, the body. Christ is our head. We operate as His members underneath Him in accordance to His will and His purposes and what He desires. That's the church, right? His hands, His feet. We use that all the time. That expression. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Absolutely we do. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Now you read this statement and you say, Paul, that is outlandish. Where in the world are you going with that? Why would you say such a thing? That's, that's not appropriate, Paul. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul's not just saying something to be blunt. But rather, he's rooting this all in biblical reality, in biblical truth. And he's unpacking the implications of such. Look, look what, he, what he goes on to say in verse 16. Or do you not know? Notice, that, that shows up a lot. It showed up a lot last week. shows up three times in this text. Do you not know? Do you not know? It says, or do you not know that the one who joins himself, it's intentional language there, joins himself to a prostitute, is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That's where that's coming from. When the Lord says that a man should leave his mother and his father, be joined to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. That's where he's rooting and grounding all of this. And this biblical reality of union between two individuals. Now, I'm going to come back to this. I told you we're going to move a little more quickly through some of this, and it's all going to come together. Look with me down, 17 and 18. It says, But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. One of those imperative statements. Get away from it. Flee it. If, if you're dabbling in sin, dabbling in immorality, what does the Bible say about that? Flee. Get away from it. Okay? Get away from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. 
that the immoral man sins against his own body. What does he mean by that? What do you, what do you mean here, Paul? I've heard some use this as a text to construct a hierarchy of sin, whereby the sexual sin is higher up on the totem pole, right? It's higher up in ranking. And then you got these other smaller sins that are less damning. But I don't think that's what Paul's trying to do here. In part because of what he says in verses 9 and 10. Remember last week he lays out those 10 examples of unrighteous living, unrighteous lifestyles, many of which are sexual. But then in the same breath he brings up things like thievery and drunkenness. He doesn't make a distinction there. He just keeps right on going. So I don't think he's doing it here. I don't think that's his purpose. Rather, I think what he's doing here in verse 18 is defining the, the nature of these sins. He, he's clarifying that there's a different nature about sexual sin than there are from other sins. And I think that's all rooted in Genesis 2. Church, the reality is God has ordained sex. He ordained it. That it be between a man and a woman in a covenantal relationship of marriage whereby two individuals become one flesh. There's a, a new union that takes place. There's a new reality that comes into being whereby two people or formerly individuals now become one. The two become one. God has ordained it to work that way. And, and what you see here is any time where the two had been joined together and there's a, a ripping apart of that, I, I, I can't help but think about, for example, divorce. And I know maybe there's many in this room that have walked through that. This, this reality is why it is so utterly painful. Why it cuts so deep. Because it's not just a contractual relationship that's being ended. That's what the world says. He gets the cars, you get the house, contract's finished, it's done. That's not how it works. There, there's a reality that God has knit together, has brought together two people into one flesh. And when that divorce happens, there's a, a tearing, a rending apart. And that's why it hurts. That's why it wounds so deeply. That's why he says... This sin is different. It's different in nature from drunkenness. It's different from thievery. Because you're tearing apart something God has ordained to be together for a lifetime. Now church, that, that applies to more than just marriage. Our culture, the world in which we live today, promotes sex as just a casual function. Just a casual activity. This person goes and gets coffee, this person's going to go out and have sex. That's just what you do. You have a, a, a need that needs to be satisfied, you just go and do it. We're, we're no different. Our world today is no different than the Corinthians, than Corinth, that says food for the stomach, stomach for the food. That's the world in which we live. But friend, that's why that one night stand or fling or whatever it was, the next day when they walk away and leave, it hurts. Why is that so different? Because something God ordained to stay together is being torn apart. It's not intended to work that way. When we take what God has intended and we pervert it, whatever that is, we distort it, that's sin, and it hurts. 
and it never operates as it should. Church sex is not casual. It's not, no matter what the world says. Now, there's something else here that we need to see. Let's dig in a little deeper on this. Because as Paul brings up this union, the two becoming one flesh, there's something he's going to talk about. We'll get to it next week, Lord willing, in chapter 7. He talks about the husband not having authority over his own body, but rather it's now the wife. And so it is the wife no longer has authority over her body, but the husband. There's a mutual submission that now happens in this new relationship, in this new one flesh union. It functions differently. It's not the same as two individuals. And so when you apply that to what he's saying here in verses 15 and 16 about a prostitute, what's the implication? These believers who have joined themselves to a prostitute are not now under the authority of Christ, but functionally they are under this prostitute. The prostitute is their authority. That's the one calling the shots in their life. Functionally. They are, as he said in verse 12, being mastered. They've been mastered by this sin. They've put themselves under the authority of another in competition with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is intended to be our head. You, you see why Paul is so distraught over this. And church, we... I fear the church in our day has shied away from this for too long. And there's too many in our midst, and I, I say not just here, but globally in the church, that are partaking in this very thing, submitting under the lordship of someone else that is not the Lord Jesus. Look with me at verse 19, how Paul brings this all together. It says, or do you not know? There it is again. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? We see the Holy Spirit abiding in two places over the course of these chapters. We saw it a few chapters back, being in the corporate gathering of the saints, the church. The Spirit gathers. The Spirit is here when we gather. We recognize that as a body of believers. He also abides in the individual. When you leave this place, He goes with you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Why is He bringing all this together in this way? I think for a couple of reasons. One, certainly reminding them of this reality. Just like He had said before, hey, you're deceived. He's saying, hey, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Hey, the Holy Spirit resides in you. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't defile the temple. Don't be bringing in false gods and idols and so forth and so on. But I think there's also this reality, this awakening to them and I believe to us that the Holy Spirit is always with us in our midst. When I was in my youth, I don't know, some would say I'm still in my youth. I don't feel that way. Um, but uh, when I was younger, there was an activity that took place in and around 
the neighborhood, the, the community in which I lived. And I, probably in most of the U.S., I don't, I don't know, maybe it was regional. And it was called TPing someone's yard. Okay, now TP stands for toilet paper. And it's exactly what it sounds like. You take toilet paper and you throw it across someone's yard. That's what happens. And if the person has a lot of trees, it gets really bad because it goes over the trees and you hope and pray it doesn't rain. Because if it does, you're going to be just picking gobs of toilet paper out of your trees for weeks. And it's an awful thing, right? Praise God, I never participated in this. My sister may or may not have, I don't know. But Kim, if you're watching, I love you. Um, But what would embolden youth to do such a thing, right? How in the world do you get the gumption up to go and do something like this? Well, primarily because it happens at night. When all the lights are out, the homeowner's asleep or maybe out of town, and you go real quietly, you start throwing it, right? That's what emboldens you to do this. Because you assume nobody knows what's happening. So it is, I think, here, as Paul is ringing the bell, saying, the Holy Spirit is in you. Because we deceive ourselves into thinking, nobody will know. Nobody's home. This is done under the cover of darkness. It'll never come to light. We deceive ourselves in that way. And Paul here is saying, the Holy Spirit, He never sleeps. He's never not home. He always knows what's taking place. And and that ought to impact the life of a believer. When when you're awakened to the reality that everywhere I go, everything I do, the Holy Spirit is present. And He's in full knowledge of everything that's happening in my life. Every thought that goes through my mind. Every glance that I take. Everything that I do. That ought to change the way in which we live. It ought to drive us to pursue holiness. He says, for you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Church, your salvation, the grace that you received, that we've received, it might be free in that we didn't do anything to deserve it. That's why it's grace. But it was immeasurably costly. We were purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave His life as a ransom for us. He hung on a cross on Calvary and submitted Himself unto death. Why? That we might be forgiven. That we might come to new life. That we could receive Him. And that we could stand before a holy God as clean and blameless. It was immeasurably costly, the purchase of your salvation. Therefore, I love those, I love those therefore statements in Scripture. Therefore, based on that reality, based on your purchase by God, for God, therefore, glorify God in your body. Therefore, you live differently. You seek to glorify God in all that you do. Because you've been bought. Because of the cross. It changes everything, church. Now, I want to close by just asking a couple of questions potential applications maybe for this. And I'm sure there's others, and I trust that the Lord may stir your heart in a certain way and you be obedient to what God's asking you to do today, okay? But maybe it's this. Maybe maybe you've constructed some theological framework 
to justify your sin. Whatever it is. Maybe it's not sexual sin, maybe it's something else. But you've built this framework to support your ongoing sin. And today the Lord just blew that up. And you need to repent of that. You need to confess it, you need to repent, and begin to rebuild on the foundation that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe, maybe you've not lived as though your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. And you need to make some changes in your lifestyle. Maybe that's with regards to what you eat or what you do, how much you sleep, taking care of yourself. God cares about those things. If our body is for His service, would He not desire us to live as long and healthily as possible, to steward ourselves well, that we may feel well, that we can operate and do what He's called us to do? I believe so. Now that doesn't mean, don't mishear me here, you may have struggles, you may have sufferings that are outside of your control. And that's by God's ordaining, okay? I believe He, he calls some to suffer in different ways. But as much as we can have impact on this, we ought to live and steward our bodies in a way that is honoring to God. Alright? And then here's lastly, I'll leave us with this. Maybe you've experienced the, the hurt, the pain, the deep woundedness that comes from experiencing that that one flesh union being torn apart. Maybe that was in a divorce. Maybe that was in a one night stand. Maybe that was in something. I, I don't know. But maybe you've experienced that hurt and you're still dealing with it. And, and this morning you just need to go before God and, and ask for His healing balm to be applied to your heart. And friend, I just want to say, I'm so grateful and so thankful that God can bring restoration and healing to that hurt. He can restore. He can do that work in your life. And so I want to encourage you. Go before Him. Ask for that. Ask for that healing. We'd be happy to pray for you with regards to that. Share as much as you feel comfortable. This can be just between you and God. That's okay. But I know we're going to have some folks out here bearing the heat that are very happy to pray with you. Myself included, okay? I'm going to pray, and you be obedient to what God's asking you to do this morning, all right? Let me pray. Father, I do thank you again for today. Thank you for life and breath and all things. And Lord, I thank you for your word that informs us and enlightens us to reality. So many of the things we experience in life, maybe we don't understand, and the world tells us one thing, and, and then we look in your scripture and we see the actual reason behind things, why things operate the way they do, why things hurt the way they hurt, how you've ordained things to take place. And so, Father, I pray that we might commit ourselves to walk in holiness and righteousness, to not pervert the, the good things that you've ordained in life. Father, I pray that, that you might move in the hearts of all of us here, in some measure, Lord, this morning. And that as I started our time this morning by simply saying, I don't want us to just be challenged. I want us to be changed. Father, I pray you'd do that work, that we'd leave differently than how we came.
that we're different. We're not just challenged from week to week, but rather we're sanctified. We're, we're growing in Christ's likeness. We look more and more like you every day. Father, do that work among us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You be obedient.